Hello, my name is Craig Gilligan and welcome once again to the JGT podcast. First of all, can I say thank you? We've got several five-star reviews on Apple iTunes and that's absolutely wonderful and always appreciated. So thank you very much for that. Uh, So you are very welcome. And today's guest is Andy Oakes. Andy spent the vast majority of his career as a social worker specialising in mental health. He's now retired, but is actively involved in getting men together to talk, particularly through a project called Goal Difference, which we'll learn more about in the interview. He's married to Cheryl, and they have two children, Ben and Hannah. Both um, are fantastic young musicians, and I've had the, the great privilege of being part of their musical education. Andy begins the interview by explaining where he's from in Stoke-on-Trent and talks us through his early years. This podcast is brought to you, as always, by the Jogaligan Trust. Okay, well, I'm from Stoke-on-Trent, but right on the border with Cheshire. Uh, parents live in, still live in Brindley Ford, um, which is on the border of Stoke-on-Trent uh, and, and yeah. Cheshire, near Biddulph, um in the north. Um, they're 92 and 90 now and still <laughs> living in the same, <laughs> same house. Um, and I've lived there um, pretty much the whole of their married life. And so I grew up in Brindley Ford. So I, I grew up in a little mining village, you know, typical of North Staffordshire uh, in that sense. Um, went to the village school, um, uh, which, um, looking back, the village school is a nice little school, but educationally uh, wasn't maybe the best uh, start to have, or even um, in terms of understanding what you were going to face when you went on from that, because it was quite... Uh, um, insular and enclosed we all everybody knew everybody and saw each other throughout the whole yeah. day after school <laughs> before was that um, a primary school then Andy or, or, or was it a second yeah primary school yeah yeah well it's junior infants in those days yeah and, and on through till 11 plus um it, it was as I say it was a small school made up of the village children really um that makes it sound quaint. It wasn't quite that quaint. <laughs> um, I can't think how many people would be there. There would have been about 70, I think, pupils in total. So it picked up maybe a few less than that. Um, but relatively yeah. pain-free um, <laughs> childhood, growing up in a village where in those days, we were talking about this the other day, I, I uh, had the free run of going wherever I wanted. We were just out all day. I mean, it's a, it sounds a bit cliched, and you hear people at my age group talking about that, but I did grow up like that. So from quite young, it was safe, or it felt safe, to go anywhere in and around the village. We lived quite a little bit outside the village, so um, but we used to just go out, and that would be it. There was no worry about where we were or what we were doing. And then... Um, as I say, I don't think anyone passed the 11 plus. From so there was no um, expectation you would go on to uni or to sixth form or? Well, oh, well, it was it was strange really because we, again, have this conversation with my mum and dad and they recall going to um, um, 
a school, a parent teacher's night, as you yeah. recall it, now, and talking to the teacher, and he said, well, I think uh, Andrew's got to future using his hands and some manual. Well, I'm the most inept. They laugh if they were here. You know, if I put a shelf up, it will fall down. Um, and I do remember at secondary school doing um, O levels, they were then GCSE uh, woodwork. And I, uh, the, the practical, I finished up with six pieces of wood to put together and we should only add five. So that couldn't have been further away from the, the, yeah. the reality of the situation. I think it, it comes home to me that, you you know, uh, this idea that, that people form with people at a young age isn't necessarily where they are, because you know, I was always a bit more of a thinker, though I never revealed it. Uh, you know, I, really, uh, and I, I probably thought too much about things, um, uh, but never revealed it at school uh, in that sense. So the, I didn't go to secondary school with any potential of doing anything. I didn't know what I was going to do. I went to child school, which, if I'm honest, uh, wasn't the best experience in the world. I can't say I enjoyed school. And again, um, educationally, I think in my year, three of us passed English O-level literature and um, language. I was one of the three, but there was only three people that my whole year that passed, which sums it up. And I'm being a bit... I wouldn't be harsh on the teachers. I don't think it was just about the teachers. I think we were just, it was a school with a reputation and it wasn't, um, it was yeah, run down. It's very different now. It's modern school now. But in those days, it wasn't the best school from an education point. What, um, and again, I left there with no idea what, <laughs> no intention. I hadn't even thought about, I'd certainly not thought about social work. I hadn't thought about anything went to what was then Calden College, because I'd still got, by that time, I'd still got some grass on, no, I want to do something, I want to go to university, I want to, uh, although I wasn't, as I say, not sure what. Um, went to Calden College, got very good at tennis, um, <laughs> and instead of spending two years, and only spending three years there, because uh, me, uh, again, laugh about this, uh, me and a close friend who I met at that time, um, we got good at table tennis and tennis, um, but you really didn't do a great deal <laughs> academically. Um, and, um, but managed, you know, by the end of that, to scrape out with enough to go somewhere. To say it's interesting what you're saying about DIY. I mean, I, I, the 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 single most stressful experience I've had in many years, Andy, recently was trying to put a TV on the wall. Oh my! A, a dry, yeah, a dry line wall as well. It was an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Oh no. I know. I've made a mess. I've made a mess of those sort of things so many times. Where we're at a fillet, getting decorated again. Oh my Ben is far better than me at doing this sort of stuff. He, uh, well, of course, he did A level, didn't he? he did the A level um, design tech? I think it's. It, I remember him doing that. So you got to the end of secondary school, then you went to Calden College, and then was it A-levels there, or was it a, a vocational pathway? It was A-levels, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I did um, A-level history, right. sociology, and English, which um, 
and I sort of got a vague notion that I'd go and do some sort of that to lead into journalism because all again I've always had a passion for reading and reading papers those days we haven't got this sort of technology had we so it was papers you, you know I read a daily paper and a, you know um, a broadsheet <laughs> and enjoyed it used to enjoy reading the paper and um, I got a vague idea to do mm. something like that um, and I got to the end of that and actually was looking to somewhere to go and I couldn't really make my mind up. I was directionless as sums it up, really. Um, the classic case of um, you know, um, going out, socialising, music, uh, <laughs> uh, a few drinks had taken over <laughs> and focused my attention. So um, I decided, well, I'll take a year out. You know? Even though it was already a year behind, so it was a year older, I thought, you know what, I'm not sure. I could have gone to Bradford and I just didn't have the same appeal as going to yeah, sure. London or somewhere. <laughs> so um, I thought I'll take a year out and I'll just, you know, have a think about it. And I got a relative, um, it was a, a close friend. I knew as auntie, she was, a, I think, a second cousin of my dad or, or um, it was a distant relative anyway, who um, was a social in social work. Um, and I was looking around for a part-time job, you know, for 12 months. And she she sort of got me a job as a, a part-time right. care assistant um, at a, a, a hostel working with people with learning disabilities. And um, I went into that, and it was one of those things that wouldn't happen these days. But within three months, it offered me a full-time post. And then because they were short-staffed somewhere else, they said, can you come and work there? And before I knew it, I was working in a children's home, ironically, quite close to where my mum and dad were still living, um, and essentially looking after it, managing it. <laughs> How I got into that position is a bit sort of, I look back and it was just pure so luck. So you're in, you're in your early early 20s now, would you say? I'd be, I'd be at that time about 20, uh, 20, yeah, 20. I'm trying to think... Uh, Time plays tricks with you, doesn't it, age-wise? So starting in 77, yeah. it'd be about 20, yeah, and then um, um, 1920. Yeah. So quite young to be in sort of those yeah. roles. Um, yeah, in fact, I remember there was a um, one given again, given my practical inaptitude to do anything, um, to look after myself or do anything, really, um, I got, they were short-staffed at what was then called the Working Boys Hostel in Hartsell, and said, will you go? There'd been a, a guy there, Paul, who um, I got to know well after, a really nice man. He, uh, he'd been there basically by himself for months, got no staff. So, and this was for sort of 16 to 18-year-olds, yeah. post-care system. Idea, you know, who'd been in yeah. trouble most of them, <laughs> basically, but we're trying to get them together. Um, so I pitched up one afternoon. Yeah, I'll go and have a look. I'll go and meet him. Come up. Walked in and he basically said, oh, nice to meet you. Here's the keys. Um, and they'll be in it. They'll be in it half past four for the tea. It's omelets tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back to lock up. I'll be back to take over at you know, nine o'clock. And I'm thinking, oh, well, bluff my way through, really. It's amazing, isn't it, when you think these days there's all the safeguarding and DBS checks. And he should have given the keys and just told to make some omelette and, you know, crack on with it. Fantastic. How times have changed. Yeah. yeah. It's just, 
it became, yeah. well, even with, I mean, thinking about it, even yeah. with, the lads had not met me. So they came in and I'm there. They never met me before. I was saying, oh, hello. <laughs> and, that's, and that's in Hearts Hill, is it? That, that working boys club? Yeah, that was an art sale. Yeah, um, I, I mean, you know, the buildings now. Yeah. It's been various things since then, and I think it's being redeveloped again now. But yeah, so again, but it, I suppose it worked for me in the end because it was a baptism of fire. You just got stuck in, and I was fortunate enough because by this time I'd done two years really post. You know, I've been intending just have a year off. Jobs opened up. I started getting a bit better pay. Although that is funny in itself, because I think my first paycheck was £14.25, and that, that was part-time, and I went full-time, and it went up to £19, <laughs> because of tax and things. So. Oh dear. so looking back through secondary school, sixth form, and then entering into the world of work, was there a particular barrier or challenge that you overcame that uh, sticks out in your mind? When I, I've talked to my children and, and you know others you know, i was lucky it, it was a, it was a different time so jobs were different and so we gave off to get a job you, you you could leave school and you would find a job and you'd find generally something that, you know that you were interested in whatever that was whether it was um and um i was very lucky in the sense that um i was offered jobs i mean i rarely did i have to apply for something uh, in, in social care at the time, it was ridiculous. You know, I didn't, I don't think I had a proper interview for the first four jobs that I did. It was just like a one to one conversation, basically asking if I do, yeah. you know, help out and sort of stuff. So I, I was able to get a lot of experience quite quickly. Um, mm. So I was lucky. Well, the doors of education closed and the doors of the world of work opened in our day, so it was a lot easier to uh, to walk straight into a job, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a career, really. I mean, I always remember, again, being said at the time when I got a job in what was the local authority, um, oh, that's a job for life. Job for life. You don't hear that often nowadays. Of course. Yeah. No. No. Yeah, well... It isn't. It's you know. It's, you, I wouldn't say that to a social worker starting now. People don't go into that, even as a professional qualified social worker, going thinking, "Well, that's my job for life." It's it's changed considerably during that time. And um, but yeah, uh, you know, I was uh, I was I was lucky enough to be in that time where, and I do reflect and think sometimes, would I have got to where I was if it was the system as it was now? And if I'm honest, probably not, just because of the nature, you know, how I am a bit laid back about things, not not really. So was it was this now the first time where you're in your early 20s and you suddenly found an interest because, you know, you weren't particularly sporty, I would, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, or, or musical, you didn't fall into that category? Oh, no, well, I played football, I don't know, I mean, oh, you know, I played right. football, I played tennis, uh, okay. the family played golf, so I played golf since I was 12, uh, um, and, you know, um, as I say, at, at, at Corner, yeah. I think that's all we did. You know, you're a sporty type, yeah. Yeah, 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 <laughs> you're not. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but I was always had that ability to be able to just, on the hoof, scrape my way through getting stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose that is an ability, but it's not an advised 
<laughs> yeah, um, uh, so yeah, uh, again, I was very lucky at that time. There were opportunities for circle governments to do your social work training. And um, because I was of that age and I got my level of experience that it got early, um, I got that opportunity. So I was seconded to and paid right. to go and do my social work training. And by which time I decided, well, yeah, I quite like this. I quite like interacting with people. Um, it's a difficult one. I've interviewed people uh, later in life for jobs and things, and people come in and say, oh, I've always wanted to work with people, etc." Well, I didn't. That wasn't my... Um, but actually, in essence, most people who go into social work have got an inner thing about wanting to interact with people and make a difference to people. And a degree of social conscience, uh, you know, it was... that that. I wouldn't have termed it like that at the time, but I had got this, some notion of social justice and injustice. And a desire to connect, I would imagine, as well. Yeah, yeah that's right. And When mm. you feel you're making a bit of a difference with people, especially at a young age, it's quite a drug in the sense that you're having an impact for people. You, you know. um, so I got a lot back out of it. And by, by the... Once I'd done two years, it was pretty much clear that's what I was going to do. So that, that wasn't a specialism in mental health then? That was just to, to be a social worker, was it? No, in those days, right. no, it was generic. You did a generic social work. You could, um, in the second year, specialise in um, yeah. children or adults, and I chose adults. But it was broad. Uh, uh, most of the stuff that we did was even if you'd done those specialisms, was the same. It was, you know, um, and in fact, generic social work at the time, it was generic. You didn't have separate teams. So I'm curious, Andy, where did your interest in mental health come from and when did it begin? It evolved. Hmm. Again, you know, uh, I knew nothing, nothing. I went to work in a, a hostel, which was a hostel for people with mental health problems, but they had a day unit for people with learning disabilities. I was working in the yeah. learning disability unit. Um, but I soon started to do some work in the mental health hostel bit, and that's where I finished up managing that, ultimately. Um, and I suppose I got no knowledge, no understanding whatsoever of mental health. And I, to a degree, that was yeah. an advantage, because I went in quite open-minded, and they were just people, you know. Um, and what I soon found out was, yeah. They were very interesting people, you know, people you could have a really great conversation with. Um, they'd had lives which were alien to me, given my upbringing, but, but you know, goodness, how, how they'd had lives that, you know, we wouldn't have experienced, etc. That you could so soon um, start to feel, well, this is what I really enjoy doing. Now, I did diversify a bit because jobs became available, as I say, ended up managing a children's yeah. home for a short period of time, doing bits of other jobs. Um, but predominantly from once I qualified, I did mental health. And um, when I qualified, I was managing a hostel for, for people with mental health problems, then moved back into working um, field social work as a mental health specialist. Um, and in those days, we under the Mental Health Act, we did um, ASD-approved social work training, um, which again, um, I think I think it was twelve weeks I did then. So, and I came out of that. You were the person who um, actually 
did the assessment for admitting people to hospital um, under section. 12 weeks, six weeks towards, Good six weeks placements. <laughs> it's a master's course now. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, um, and I, I distinctly remember finishing that and the following week, within a few days, going out to do an assessment with, <laughs> with another social worker. Wow. Which, um, I would be, you know, horrified myself looking back on it, but now people, he just, no, just wouldn't happen, of course. And in late life, I got into social work training. That's you know, did a, quite a, a spell as training officer, mental health training officer for the council, um, and got involved with Birmingham University on developing the um, approved social work course, which became you know, um, which still exists, mm. it's a different thing now, right? It's, it's AMP now, but uh, um, oh, and finish up marking portfolios, but the. And I always sat laughed when I marked these portfolios because they, you know, the proper master's level portfolios. And I'm thinking, well, when I started, I did 12 weeks, and we had a test at the end of each week. I wonder if all this changes for the better. You know, I mean, you you must have seen so many changes. I mean, I mean, I can remember people saying, you know, mind over matter. Come on, you know, mind over matter. Pull yourself together, and that was kind of mental health. That was it. <laughs> and how far it's come, and yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know, and that they're so far from the mark. I, mean, I think what you learn fairly soon into your career is that you know we're all vulnerable, and you know what these people are experiencing is just a different level of what much of the time lots of us experience in our lives. We just don't have the extremes. No, obviously, when you get into people with psychosis, there's a different thing going on there, but um, in reality. Even those people have had lives which have impacted on them, and you think, "Well, would I be that yeah. much different if I lived yeah. through that?" You know. It's, uh, so, um, it, it's an interesting. The, the thing with the train as a training officer, I remember going to a um, a conference in Leeds where they were trying to shift. Traditionally, the social work course was open to anyone, um, so you could go into it, you know, later in life, and you could do a two-year training course, and it was. Um, a different level, so you could do a degree, you could do a diploma, you could do, um, and they shifted it into to got to be a degree course, and you got to have um, a certain level of education yeah. before you could get into it. And I was a bit of a heretic because I stood up and said, "We are going to lose so many good social workers yeah. by doing this." And the reason they were doing it, there were lots of positive reasons about wanting to make it more professional, making more. Um, making sure that the, the standard was raised in terms of what went through. But it eliminated a lot of people that a lot of valuable experience who would have made and did make great social workers who mm. wouldn't now go and do it. Um, and I think we are in that position where there's a lot of people who would be really good at yeah. doing the social work thing. So is it possible now to go A-levels at university then straight into the role of a social worker? Um, and if that's the case, do you think maybe there should be an element of life experience that's built into the training before people actually get out there on the front line? I do think that would be a great thing because certainly, and I'm being very careful, I'm out of it now so I can say what I like really about it. <laughs> but we get a lot, or we used to get a, a lot of social workers that came out having done that route of A-levels, university, and they think they qualify as social workers because they've got a piece of paper that says that they are. And reality is, it hits them like a ton of bricks when they, they, they come 
and face what actually is going on, whereas you've got somebody with a lot of experience of working with people, um, it would sail through the, that bit of it. Um, so there's pros and cons. I'm not saying it shouldn't be professional, really, because it's now much more intense. Um, we worked very much on relationship-based social work, so you built up a relationship, and uh, some of the time it would be, you know, I'll be around at three o'clock, let's have a cup of coffee, we'll have a chat, that sort of, yeah. Now it's much more um, assessment, purchaser provided, set up, the, the whole thing is very, very different. Um, and uh, although we're moving back to relationship, you know, I think it's been recognised that actually we lost something, we've got too much of a, you know, we're a broker of care, we're not there. Um, relationship building is now key really to, to getting people through things and um, I just think that there's a balance I, my, my, we talked about education of course while I was at um, Calden I worked at the co-op and what was the first big supermarket in, in, in Tunstall the Norman and that was an education that's where I got my social work education yeah yeah um, because you met a broad range of people who I wouldn't have met, you know, have anything in common with met in my life. I got to know them uh, and learnt a lot about people. Andy, it was only it was only after I'd spent some time on the working man's club circuit that I realised what you know, you know, musician was all about. And uh, yeah. I could write a book about some of the stories yeah. <laughs> playing yeah. the working man's clubs. Um, yeah, but coming coming yeah. so, so in total, you did what forty plus years? Did you say earlier? 42 years is 42 and you retired what about 18 months ago was it 18 months ago yeah uh, i retired early i mean obviously i got um i yeah. could have gone on for another five years <laughs> four years um, and i uh but I, again something which i sort of I sound like you do end up sounding like um your father <laughs> Mental health awareness now is at its peak, isn't it? Do you, do you think it? Do you think it's helped having people like Prince William on board, and and has this helped? Is this a good thing? I think it does. Anything we would have been desperate, and you know, to have that level of um, commitment from people in the public eye when I was working in social work and developing services we 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 developed things on a shoestring if i'm honest locally we had some great so trent actually has some great mental health services um we did have we you know and we still got some great services which are unique um but they were all developed pretty much on a shoestring and you know, from the ground up and they were all um and the level of publicity that now that um, mental health gets positive uh, we have been desperate for that at that time. It was just not talked about. It was just, you know, um, people were shied away from it. And um, so it does help. I think there's an element of, I sometimes worry that it's um, just by saying it, that makes it right, so we haven't got to do anything else. There's not, you know, it's got to be backed up with some substance behind services that are offered. Uh, and especially for young people and, and 
men, you know, particularly there's a lot of stuff flying around now about um, get men talking, which is fantastic because we are rubbish at talking men. Statistically, yeah. still, um, we're pretty bad at actually telling people how we are feeling and how, you know, what our problems are. But um, so anything that comes on where there's yeah. footballers and there's the Prince William, etc., talking about mental health has got to be a good thing. Can you tell us about the projects that you're involved in, Andy, to to get men together, to get them talking about um, issues regarding mental health? I've been involved with a thing called um, It's a Goal, which essentially we bought. It was a franchise thing about 11 years ago when I was was working in the local authority, I think. It was just on that cusp of services moving into NHS. And we ran it at Stoke. Um, 11 years and it was a program that had been written by a CPN who got an entrepreneur back team to actually we bought the franchise and it, it, um, essentially it was a very a set program that helped people who've been through therapies and it hadn't quite worked men especially so if somebody was to go along to one of the sessions the gold different sessions at Port Vale or Stoke City what sort of activities and um, and tasks might they be presented with? It runs on a Thursday afternoon every week. Yeah. Anyone can come. There's a very, very set that Port Bell's Tuesdays, Stoke Thursdays, when we can get back into the grounds. Sure. Um, and one of the joys of it was that there was no referral process other than a phone call. Mm. So um, we don't fill forms in. We don't ask for people to tell us their life histories. Uh, professionals do and can refer anybody can so um people just by word of mouth hear about it um originally and still is the lee mccarry was very supportive originally of what we did um he um and he put some stuff in the press and occasionally mentioned it and we get phone calls from that um the best place to put attract men was to stick posters up in toilets and the pubs because (laughs) that that, they generally will have a look at that and then and they'll make a call. So basically, they just make a call, and if it sounds good to them when we say what we do, and they think it's okay, they turn up. Um, we, um, generally speaking, we run the program periodically. So we have got a program um, of eleven weeks, which we can we tend to we aim for eleven. We can do it in eight, but we end up taking eleven. Okay. But it. People can come and do that, but they can also just come. So we have people who have been coming to the group for a number of years, yeah. uh, and use it as their social outlet, really, to interact. Opportunity with to talk. They, is it just like a platform to absolutely and support each other. Yeah. So you know, the, um, but periodically we'll run through the program again, yeah. and it's a goal-setting program. So uh, it's based around uh, five ways to work mental well-being, uh, which we rebadged. Uh, under an acronym of BCOM. So it's um, um, based on that, we'll. Um, I can, the BCOM thing is benevolence, connection, uh, uh, activity, learning, uh, uh, and um, mindfulness. So, uh, and we'll do goal setting based around those five areas. Um, but we use a football metaphor to get that in. So it becomes much more accessible than trying to talk to you. It's very non-clinical. 
so we use the basic goal setting techniques, but we illustrate them with a football pitch and people, which is a good illustration because people tend to think in goal setting goals that uh, you, you go from A to B, and that's your goal as B. Um, but of course, something like that does it. You know, on A, trying to achieve any goal. And you probably, you know, relate to this in terms of teaching an instrument or learning an instrument. You, you make some progress and then another week you'll have a, a backward step with something. Yeah, well, any goals like that. And if you think about football, they make backward passes, they make side passes, they, they don't progress. No, rarely, we always start by saying, um, how many goals can you name that uh, have been scored from their own heart, you know, one half to the other? It's difficult to say because there's two at Stoke. <laughs> They've had two players who've done it, but there isn't many that people will remember. It doesn't happen very often. They pass it through the thirds to get there. And goal setting, when you're dealing with these sort of things, is is like that. And so our program becomes a almost like a ongoing life um, skills program, which I use. Tim McCauley uses. We we use elements of it. So those things in all our lives. We all do them. We sometimes do them subconsciously, but we do those things, um, and that's what keeps us well. So, you know, I know if I'm not active, I don't feel as well. If, uh, and if I don't connect with people on different levels as well, I think we have to be clear about that. I mean, obviously, you connect with your family, but you need to connect with other people and with social beings, which is why the lockdown's been so difficult. Um, but um, so all those things. I mean, it's interesting when you get to the mindfulness one, because people—that—that's people shy away from that concept. That was something I was keen to discuss with you, Andy. What's your feelings on mindfulness and how it's grown in popularity? Do you use any of the apps yourself, like Headspace or Calm? Oh, uh, well, I have done. I've recommended them. Yeah. Um, the answer is to all things. I think mindfulness would benefit everyone. I would say, I mean, we'll talk about football ground because that's where we go. We went to the football ground and it was full. Um, virtually, if not all, everyone would benefit from mindfulness if they took the time to actually understand what it was and didn't run away from it. So it would benefit everyone. Um, getting to that point where it's beneficial is a different thing. And so it's not the easiest of concepts sometimes to get over we use very simple concepts with this. And if you said, do I practice it? I practice very simple mindfulness because I'm not very good at it. You know, I'm first to admit to that I'm not very good at it. Again, the colleague who I work with at this, he's pretty good at doing two half-hour sessions a day. Wow. If he does, you know, he'll say, he gets in the car, drives to work, parks the car, gets there half an hour early, parks the car, and does a mindfulness session in the car. Puts the tape on, does some... Medicine, and then the same at the end of the day. And then I'm pretty rubbish at doing it. I I can do a 10 minute (laughs) one at a struggle, uh, but I do think it's beneficial. Uh, Understanding the concept of mindfulness is beneficial. Yeah. Uh, uh, What we found interesting with the the groups, especially the the established group, Bearing in mind that we're dealing, you know, we're working generally with men from our, our age group or a bit young, you know, but generally men who've been on the football terraces in the you know, 70s and 80s course, yeah. who you know, were um, 
of that ilk. Yeah, <laughs> pull yourself together. We, <laughs> that was a matter. Yeah, and yeah, and you know, come with all the baggage of what went on then. Sure. The, the football violence, the, the racism, etc. But um, we, um, and I'm not saying they're all racist, by the way, but but they all got that inherent in their background uh, or experienced it in some cases. They're, but they're. Um, we sat the other, a few weeks ago before they started and we've been talking again about mindfulness and we occasionally we'll run sessions and we'll do revisit it for people. And um, they got talking about, we somehow led into talking about Buddhism and Zen and things. <laughs> How we got here, we've got this group of people who were <laughs> furthest away from that you could possibly get, <laughs> who are now just actively, we could sit back and get talking about it. Um, uh, talking about the Zen Buddhism as a <laughs> on a Thursday afternoon in Stoke, which uh... I think if people can try to understand that it's okay for your mind to wander, it's okay to have other thoughts, um, because obviously our minds are designed to think, and and I think the worst kind of mindfulness practice is when you you try to force this kind of silence and meditation on yourself. Our minds are actually active all the time. We never, we never stop. So the good one I always start people with it is uh, just try brushing your teeth every day. Three minutes, brushing your teeth. Try to not think about anything but brushing your teeth. And they all think, yeah, well, that's easy. But no one comes back and says they've done it because you can't. You can't, can you really? But no. you're, you're absolutely right. The skill isn't in that the skill is in recognizing when something comes into your head while they're doing it yeah absolutely and i'm a huge fan and i, and I think people think that meditation is all about some guy sitting in a robe cross-legged on a cushion and it couldn't be further from the truth could it i think it we we, we should all stop pause and reflect for a few moments every now and again i think that's exactly what we need in some ways it's too simple that's the problem isn't it and yeah there has been an industry built on mindfulness being sold as this Thing, but actually it's fairly simple concepts that work mindfulness and uh, I like the toothbrush one because you know everybody can, most people clean the teeth don't they it's three minutes and if you can start doing it for three minutes you can then move into the other one the other one we, we've got somebody who comes and helps us um, sometimes in some sessions and she she brings a packet of, of polos and gives people a polo and said right just you know, try and suck that polo and just think about the polo. <laughs> yeah, that's more than generally, you know, that's a variable time between three minutes, but again, it's so difficult, you know, trying to, but it's recognizing that it is actually, is the 70% of the value is recognizing it. Absolutely. And sometimes you can be on a journey somewhere in the car and not even think about actually driving the car. You can arrive at your destination and have no recollection of oh, your yeah. journey, which is incredible, really, isn't it? That's exactly it. Well, yeah, that's, in it, again, what's one regularly recorded. You know, the whole conscious, subconscious actions that we use that the brain allows us to do. Driving a car is a great one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And you start to think about and I read a good one the other day about that. So, you know, if you're driving your car, generally, and you're a good driver, you're not thinking about it, are exactly. you? You can actually be driving, you know, listening to the radio. There's always some music on an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're not, you're not thinking about it. But if a police car comes up behind you, even if you're driving responsibly incorrectly, all of a sudden your actions become stilted. Yeah, you become very present, <laughs> don't you? You become. Yeah, you're thinking about yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so all that subconscious skill that you've got goes through the window because you really immediately freeze up. Yeah. And if you yeah. think about that, you can apply that for lots and lots of things in life, can't oh, you? You know, you know, you know the people applied that, you know, going for interviews, then if they can manage that yeah. and then recognise, actually recognise that they're going to freeze up yeah. because, they, you know, the police car's behind them, yeah. then you know, they, they can deal with it. Absolutely. They can deal with it better. Um, this chat was saying that you just feel your feet on the ground if you sit and feel that because you know the ground is always still if you just feel that feet feel that ground yeah. under your feet and just then you can just be kind of grounded and present and i do think it yeah. helps and absolutely right i think we, sh we should have more of this in school i think if we were to ring ring, ring a bell and we all stop for a few minutes and you know we're so deadline driven well, yeah. aren't we and so timetable driven it's a crucial life skill and uh, i i just you know, I think if we recognise it as such, it, it, and it's not just for people, there tends to be a thought that it's just for people who've got a problem. Well, actually, it's the opposite. It, it's for everyone so that they don't have a problem. And it enables them to actually do things. And again, I think there's a correlation with music and, and this, you know, you know, performers, and I, I, I don't, but I've seen them perform. And, and they go into a place you know, is different outside what's going on to get the best performance. So, you know, if they can master that skill as part of the um, the progress, then from a young age, then they can be better at anything, uh, whether that's music, it could be anything that you applied it to, couldn't it? You know, Absolutely. You can just put yourself in a place that, you know, you're able to control or recognise, it's not even controlling, it's recognising what's going on. Um, but we just not haven't over the modern times and not been you know, programmed to do yeah, that in this culture. In other cultures, it is more accepted and normal. But in this culture, we we've lost that somewhere. We lost that. Yeah, we do. Put it back in. Would be we do this thing, and and it, you've probably seen it maybe in Hannah's performing arts work, and Ben certainly did. It's, it's called stop, pause, and reflect. Yeah. And it's and it's uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. A re like a document that you um, like a diary really, but I, I think yeah. it's I I just love that phrase really. I think we should all stop pause yeah. and reflect just for a, you know. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Uh, yeah. um, apply it across. You know, that's not just for performing arts, is it? They should be doing that. It's not your today in general. <laughs> if we could all do that, we I think the world would be a better place because there's a lot said without thought that that creates stigma and dogma that you know is damaging and um generally that doesn't start with a thought it starts with you know, this thing a lack of reflection um, that people are absolutely just just moving on slightly andy um people ex when when people experience pressure and stress it brings out the best and the worst in them how how do you react under pressure under stress um Again, it's a personal thing, isn't it? But I, I probably would think back and say that I'm actually better when I'm a bit stressed and pressured. <laughs> I react well in those situations. But that hasn't been a learned thing. That's just been something that I've always worked. It goes back to <laughs> what we were talking about very early on, where I was always a last minute, I'll write the essay the night before. If I can leave it till... 12 o'clock the night before, even better. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it that way. Um, 
but I've generally got away with it. But and that, I suppose, if anything, that gave me was I'm not recommending that, but uh, that gave me some ability to work under pressure. Um, or, or um, so it can be a fault. I think it, stress is a is a good one to talk about, and we do do a bit of this within the goal difference program. And again, we use football as a reference, but um, the way in which people see stress is um, is important. If you recognise what stress is, and you can give it a name, and, you know, there's lots of psychology that's been done around that. You know, about giving the name, um, but we we use a story about. Paul Gascon and Vinnie Jones and the stress and uh, the again before a lot of kids time now but uh, you'll probably remember that when Gascon was breaking through and he was playing against Vinnie um, and he broken into the Newcastle first team and Vinnie um, was a hard man who didn't play football <laughs> and he collared him in the, before they went on the pitch and said he told me you can play football while you're not today <laughs> And basically followed him around the pitch, and uh, you know, both of them tell the story. Um, it's in the Gascoigne film that uh, he followed him around the pitch, and Gascoigne said he, I, he was never more than a foot away. I couldn't get away from him. You know, I couldn't. And he, he said, uh, after a little while, I thought I've got to do something. So he, he said, I, I tried to uh, outrun him and get it. I couldn't. I couldn't get away. He said, then I thought I'll give him a bit back. I'll give him a bit elbow or whatever. <laughs> and then he did what all bullies do <laughs> up the ante and there's the famous picture of yeah. Gasco you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah I know it well he said, he said that people thought that wasn't a, people thought that was funny and it wasn't he was just that absolute agony he was hurting you know he hurt me he said it got to the point where I was just completely in in, in his pocket to the extent where Vinny was going to take a corner and he said to Gasco I'm going to take this corner you stand there and I'll come back to you after. <laughs> and he said, I stood there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, but he did all the classic things that Gascoigne reacted to in the way that we, we all do at times. He tried to, first of all, he felt the stress, which was really, he tried to uh, run away from it. So Thompson, we'll try and avoid it, won't we? We, we feel stressed about something that's going to happen or we're doing, and we'll make any excuse to get away from it. We'll try and run away. It didn't work because it's still there. He then tried to fight it, I'm going to beat this. And what happened then was that the ante got up and he felt more stress, effectively, he felt more pain in this case. He, at the end of the story, he tried to laugh it off and actually that didn't work either. But what we always then talk about is, well, but if you can recognise what it is, that it's Vinny on your shoulder, and you can say, Vinny, I know what you're trying to do, I know you're there, but actually I'm not going to let you do this and give it a name, you can actually actually work with the stress then. It becomes more manageable. It's not as simple as that. You have to you know, work on that a little bit more. But as an, uh, an illustration, so I think that um, it's not the stress itself that causes the problem for people. It's the way in which them, they actually recognise the stress. So, so if you know your stress, you know what the stress is there, then you can actually start to work with that rather than actually try and fight it or run away from it. Or, or ignore it. It's, you know, that just it ups the ante f with it. So part of the, the skill of dealing with stress is actually recognizing it for what it is, and then and, it's, and you, you see top-notch performers saying that they they rely on stress to actually perform. Don't they? you know? The, you know, it's different than anxiety. 
that's different than anxiety. I always think people get that mixed up with anxiety. Anxiety is a different thing altogether than, than stress. Now, stress can cause anxiety. Um, anxiety can make you more stressed, but they are different things. You can be anxious about something. That's very different than being stressed about it. Um, but, uh, um, I, it needs some different thoughts, really. I think it's more difficult to deal with, to be honest. Than stress. stress is a concept that we allow to impact on ourselves to a degree. Now, I don't want to belittle that because a lot of people get very stressed and become, well, not belittling what they go through. But if we stress, you can learn to manage yeah. um, and, and use to a degree. So the difference between stress and anxiety, just clarify that for us again, Andy, please. My, my view is that anxiety is, is far less manageable and controllable. Anxiety is a state that you get into that actually is about you internally. The, um, stress has had external factors that come in and affect you. Anxiety is something that you, you, you becomes as part of you and how you feel about something. And most, most powerful things that happen to all of us are, are to do with feelings. It's how we feel. Um, so, and we can't always recognise or understand how people feel because we're personal. So, anxiety though builds with people when they get um, only they will know what causes that anxiety. For, for what makes me anxious won't be necessarily the same as what makes you anxious. Um, there might be similarities, you know, but there'll be difference. There'll be a difference, and in some cases, an extreme difference. So, people can get very anxious and build internally. Um, an anxiety about something that for me and you wouldn't be anything. We wouldn't think about it twice. Um, so for me, the difference is that stress is an external thing that actually we we bring within ourselves, whereas anxiety is internal to us and actually uh, is, is something that we're not dealing with that builds and becomes bigger to us um, than it would necessarily for anyone else. In this next part of the interview, Andy and I discuss what is probably a parent's worst nightmare. We've both sat across the table from healthcare professionals and been told, in my case, my son, in his case, his daughter, has cancer. I wasn't sure if it was something Andy was happy to talk about, um, but as I'm sure you've already established, he's he's a very warm, open person with a great empathy for other people. Um, so in this next section, we talk about this very difficult topic. We obviously have different outcomes for a start. But it was interesting what you said earlier about stress and anxiety and about how that can sit on your shoulder. And I find that the same with the grief. Grief is there. It's with you. Time certainly isn't a great healer where your kids are concerned and you do have to manage it and learn to walk with it. In a sense, you wouldn't want it to because it it's part of your life and picture that you you know you you wouldn't want to uh, i've got a I, I describe as a friend he's a guy who comes to goal difference yeah. um, but we know know so long that we, we did all of them are friends really you know that's the difference between doing it when you pay for doing it and when you're not <laughs> uh, we can actually be open out and being friends yeah. um rather than it being, uh, 
in the EOS system uh, through um, in an accident, very different than our circumstances. Yeah. Um, he um, went out one night and fell off a roof. Right. And then, um, I think his son was 18, 16. And then we always talked about this and we had, I said we've got something in common in a sense. Mine was, I went through the fear without, but I had a positive outcome. Yeah. But, um, but it's still there. It's still yeah. part of that. They'll never be able to take that out of those months out of what went through. Tell me, tell that. me how you the that initial conversation with the the doctor when you were told that that it was, you know, cancer. How how did you and Cheryl? I mean, did you? How did you react? Basically, well, we we had no warning, right. of course. We'd had a trial run, if you recall, with Ben, because with his arm, uh, you know. We, it was stuck, and we were we were actually down in Birmingham at the um, um, orthopedic cancer specialist, and we were sort of an afternoon away from deciding they were going to operate on this arm, and had warned us that you know we're keeping you know, it might be that we're keeping me in after we'll operate straight away because yeah. this arm um, preventing them. So um, we'd had that sort of experience of thinking and dreading the worst, if you like, in that, but then having an outcome that was very different. Um, when they came back sort of um, later that and said, oh no, we've decided it isn't that, it's it's this and we can treat it with a very strong anti, you know, it's completely the opposite what, from what, where we've yeah. been. So but there was a time when yeah. they, they were concerned that that may have been, you know, malignant. Oh yeah, no, right. no, I mean, virtually fed that to us. It was either going to be, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how much, you know, Ben spoke to you at the time about that, but uh, it was a very, very difficult time because we were literally all, three of us down there sitting there and they pretty much said to me and Cheryl that, you know, if it isn't um, this is ossificans, the, the, the inflammatory thing, it, it's likely to be bone cancer. And osteosarcoma is a, a common, a common yeah. in pediatric cancer, of course, osteosarcoma is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and also when they talk about elbow, mm. where they're operating, what they, you know, what's that going to be? Given, you know, who's a, he was a clarinet player at yeah, the time. He was. <laughs> Rather, I remember it well. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah and he, um, so uh, we'd had that experience. I can't say that prepared for what happened with Hannah. Mm. Um, and for us, that was it. Was very much emergency surgery. So you know, it happened over a weekend. Right. No sign of anything. No sign of anything. Um, feeling unwell. Into hospital as emergency admission thought it was appendicitis uh, operate the next day appendix is fine but they see something there so after it up and take take it out mm. uh, a large tumor so that happened within 48 hours so we need, had no inkling uh, in fact we had no inkling until they operated that there was a, it was cancer and they came back and said we've had to remove this so it was a bit like a, um, again, a bit of a cliche, but it was an express train. It is. I should be about face. What, ten years of age then. Ten, yeah, ten. Um, so um, we went with an uh, even up to that point with an experience of um, we should have been getting a holiday at the end of the week, and we were almost still think we if it's appendicitis we'd probably still go as long as we're careful to. 
that's it. She was, you know, she was in hospital for the next eight weeks, six weeks, and then chemo, etc. Um, we got through because she got through so well. Um, you know, I think we were probably um, embarrassingly in pieces. You know, looking back, um, I think we both try to hold it together for everybody else because the whole the whole family it's not just you it's the whole family it's ben ben was getting these right jews uh, gcse results at, at, at that week yeah um we in fact we should have been away the following week and arranged for his auntie to pick them up um and um hannah was in still in high dependency when they came out, <laughs> so you know, we always look back and we think, well, you know, we missed out to a degree on the joy of him getting those, you know, next time through all that. He did, we did, but we couldn't do what we would normally have done um, because one of us was staying with Anna. Mm. So um, she had surgery and then she had a course of chemo. Did she, did she have radiotherapy as well? No, right. no, she didn't need it in the end. They were looking at, you know, obviously we had to go through the process of seeing it uh, again. I remember having a conversation with you about this, and you said you can't live yourself life by the markers. Oh. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, yeah, of course, I've got to be honest, that's the most redundant conversation because you do completely live by you do. those blood results every you do. week. And um, uh, even though you're trying not to, um, and uh, uh, um, we again we had the um initial massive drop which post-surgery and then it stalled a little bit through the first chemo and you know that was probably the most worrying time yeah um, when um, it had gone so well to sort of massive drop from twenty-one thousand to seven or six or something like that and it stalled a little bit and crept you know a few hundred either way which they said you know that's the measurement it's not necessarily um but you, your heart's in your mouth till the next lot and, and uh, you know, that was the most uh, but then um it just kicked in and started to work and it dropped maybe we should explain this is called alpha feta protein and certain types of cancers secrete this particular tumor marker and uh once parents know this you just live by this number the lower the number the more the, the chemo is working, the higher the number, the more disease is gathering speed. So you just wait for the blood results and you live by the tumour markers. Um, and it does become extremely difficult. Well, I, I, one thing which I, I, I took back into work with me after this experience, to be honest, because I, I cannot fault the service we got from the uh, oncology unit here and I was having blood state and she got a uh, line said so they were coming and taking bloods and obviously she had the uh, post chemo week where she had to stay in and, and they, they were coming and taking bloods and they'd come in the morning and we'd have the results by that e you know that evening which the thought of having to wait days for your blood results for that you're just unbearable uh, and I just thought that level of understanding of the impact for everybody waiting for those, those results. But I do often laugh, 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 think about that. And think about you say, well, you can't live your life by the results. <laughs> You're absolutely spot on. You can't. Because, I mean, you've got to get on with your life, haven't you, and do things. But, uh, but my gosh, you do. You, you're waiting for that comeback on it. And, um, but 
you know, we were, we, I always, people find it funny when I say we were lucky. We were obviously lucky because it was successful, but we were also lucky all along the way with what went on in terms of the contacts we had. That even during for the surgery, that you know, found out they got to do something more, paged another doctor, and they happened to be right there. You know, he could have been, God, he could have been playing bloody golf somewhere. <laughs> he could have been playing golf. Um, and it, he, um, so it happened quickly, you know, even though, and you look back on those little things that actually, it, and they said to us, it was on the verge of bursting. It, it was, so, you know, had it burst, that would have been, you know, different kettle of fish. So you look back and you think, well, my gosh, we were lucky, really, along the way. Um, that's a difficult one to get your head around. It, it's, you know, we were, Vastly unlucky that she had it in the first place, but post that, she was lucky. It does change your life. I mean, it's interesting. The 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 NHS have been in the news a lot, you know, rightly so, with, with all the clap for carers. And there's something about oncology nurses and oncology specialists where, crikey, they they're just so. You've got to have such a connection, haven't you? And you've got to have such empathy for people. Because you, you, you're dealing with parents at their wits' end, completely at their wits' end. Whether you're a you know, millionaire or a guy who lives on the street, there's nothing more precious than your kids. And it's, uh, it's all the irrational bits that go on. And like you say, you know, the internet and technology are wonderful things when some circumstances are <laughs> out there because uh, you can't help yourself. Well, I think both of us independently said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. We'll just listen to it. And independently, we were both looking at stuff. <laughs> um, and trying to support each other. I think that's the other thing that gets missed. How much, not effort is the wrong word, but how much it drains you trying to be supportive of each other. So, you know, yeah, you have to recognise that. It's a real. If I reflected back, I think one thing I'd be saying to people is, "You're going to feel stressed, and you're going to feel that stress thing about you know it's there, it's real, it's not you know, and and you you know that'll make you react differently if you're not careful, and you'll do and say things that you don't actually mean, and then um, you know um, you've got to do your best to guard that bit that you don't actually make it worse by getting so worked up because you're so it yourself that you affect other people and who you care about and you want to you want to help really um yeah any healthcare professionals who happen to be listening to this podcast please remember from a parent's perspective bad news is best delivered quickly we had um a doctor um who would use any word apart from the word cancer when joe was first diagnosed so we didn't really understand the terminology and we didn't really know what this person was getting at. And it was only when we went to the cancer centre of Birmingham and actually saw the word cancer unit that we knew what we were dealing with. Um, from that point onward, the the care from the Teenage Cancer Trust was just absolutely incredible, fantastic. We had a, uh, we had good experiences up here with the consultants, yeah. but we saw, obviously, the treatment was managed by the consultant in Birmingham. Mm. I remember taking Hannah down with him, and I've never... Again, it was educational for me in a sense. I mean, worked in caring professions and things and that. It did reflect on it. He was so person-centred. He hardly spoke to us. Yeah. He spoke to Hannah and he was completely upfront yeah. about everything, the treatment, what it meant, what it would affect, yeah. you know, you know, and everything. And I just thought that was 
absolutely spot on. Oh, absolutely. You know, he got her trust straight away. We were almost, in fact, I think at one point he said, you know, some of this, you'll be asking, no, that was sorry, wrongly, that was up here. When they didn't, decided they didn't need to do the blood tests anymore. Right. And basically, Cheryl, we were saying, well, we'd have a, having a blood test in every yeah. other day if we could. And um said, well, that's your anxiety, not not to do with Hannah's health. Yeah. Yes. That's managing your anxiety. And, um, and it, it's, that's right. It's, you know, it, we had, there were exceptional yeah. services. And I, yeah. you know, working, I was obviously in the NHS at the time, working back, I went back and talked to some of my managers and people, the people managed teams for me, and they said, we can learn from some of this, because just, yeah, in any profession, especially teaching will be the same, I suspect. And it, you are working um, under pressure. You're working in, you know, at times where you know, services have been cut and there's been, you know, it can be demoralising. You become hardened, really, to things. Um, and you lose sight of the basic things that actually keep you going, mm. you know, which are about... You talked to me in the past about the, the thing that kept you doing the teaching was actually working with the kids, yeah. the performing arts. Yeah, uh, 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 and unfortunately, in social work, very often, and nursing, I suspect, certainly, you know, mental health nursing, you lose sight of that. Yeah. Actually, that's the other stuff becomes overwhelming. The clinical side of it, and all it becomes overwhelming. You lose sight of actually the fact that you're working with people. Who are generally really great people. Yeah. They've had you know, some difficulties, some in some cases, some very bizarre lives, but yeah. they are interesting and great people. And then that's what sustains you, really. 100%. Yeah. I think the, the the primary qualification for teaching should be the, the desire to connect with you know young people. It's 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 more important than being a you know fantastic chemistry teacher or you know music teacher if you if yeah. you've got that and because you get so much back well just going back to the uh, nhs andy we had a consultant his name was david spooner in the, the qe in birmingham and we we arrived at the cancer center sort of friday afternoon wide-eyed frightened to death and he came out to yeah. us about 10 in the evening he came out from home and he sat us down and he, you know, he talked. He was a wonderful man. He, you know, eased our, eased our minds. I mean, he could have left it until Monday, but he knew we would have yeah. had a weekend of absolute, you know, stress and anxiety. So, so he came out and spoke to us. So yeah, there are some absolutely yeah. beacons of fantastic practice out there. Yeah. I, 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 I suppose working in the NHS, I see the, the difficult side, shall we say, the side that's been starved and the, sure. the resources and you know a struggles and doesn't make performance and you know the bad stories that you hear are, are genuine people have had bad services it's not because of the people mm. you know it's because of the way services have been structured and set up and the difficulties that they've had but um, i don't think anybody in the nhs has gone in without wanting to offer a bad service anybody working in there you know but people have had bad experiences and, and i've seen that you know i had to respond to that at times yeah. complaints and things but I'd have to say that, you know, it, there are beacons of absolute excellence yeah. who, despite the difficulties, you know, um, um, have gone through. It. And, uh, yeah, we, we, well, we know even now we can, we don't have time. So I think we spoke to him. We still have a periodic phone call. It was in that phase of the uh, recovery. Um, but we we almost see them as, as 
friends that we've known for you know, years who just you know, are completely caring. It was obvious that they cared about all that. A real success story. Fantastic. Just, I want to ask you one final question, Andy, if you don't mind. And, and this, this is a, a question that I ask every guest who comes on. Okay, this is a bit of a random one here. So is there something that you believe to be true that most people would disagree with? I think that's a great interview question, actually. If I was interviewing for staff, I might ask that question. It's a, I won't, hopefully I won't be doing that ever again. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think... There's one thing I believe, I, I genuinely believe that, you know, in that people are generally good, you, you know, people's human nature. Now, uh, I think, I'd like to think that most people think that. I'm not sure they do, and I'm not sure that the times we live in and the way the media operates encourages people to think that. So, you know, I genuinely think underneath it, and I've seen examples of this, however, um, whatever way which people express themselves at times and whatever beliefs they think they've got when faced with humanity, when they're faced with somebody individually, they revert back to being, in most cases, they will revert back to being good people. And, and all, all, all else. And I, I can think of examples. I can think of examples through working with people, um, which we touched on a little bit earlier, where... They've grown up in um, with backgrounds where um, they wouldn't describe themselves as being racist or anti-discriminatory, but some of the things they say and do are, well, and and, um, and they make generalised statements. Yeah. But I've also seen the same people when confronted with somebody who they've been describing <laughs> before, who's in distress, who've been marvellous, just reverted back to seeing the person and you know doing the right thing and that i think inherently in most people that's there now i don't think everybody thinks that though i think most people think stevie wonder is a genius <laughs> he is i agree with you there well, we might agree, but I don't think... Most, most other people won't, know. But I think, you know, what you were saying earlier, so, some of that is just learned behaviour, isn't it, from the the, the the guy, you know? It's just what they've grown up listening to. And I think with that thought um, lingering in our ears that people are inherently good and um, let's try and see the good in everybody. What a fantastic way to finish. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, we've got to believe that, Yeah. If I lose faith in that, then, gosh, I couldn't have been a social worker. I don't think you could be a teacher if you didn't really believe uh, uh, inherently. You've got to believe in that, the goodwill of people, yeah. So with the songs of Stevie Wonder in our minds, we'll say goodbye to Andy and a huge thank you. In fact, I think the album Songs from the Key of Life should be mandatory in, in schools I think everybody should be made to listen to that album so thank you Andy what a, a genuinely interesting guy who is being proactive about raising awareness in mental health particularly in men um, within the city of Stoke-on-Trent <laughs>